Good evening and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Nicole Poznov. And I'm your co-host, Connor Chado. And we're here with Joshua Isaacson. How are you doing today, Josh? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So why don't you start us off by telling us what you're studying here at Western? All right. So I am in the Maring and Brandel labs here at Western, and I'm studying how these important genes called tRNA genes, how errors in them can affect fitness, development, or potentially disease progression using fruit flies. Cool. So tRNA genes, what do they do normally? So So tRNA genes, or transfer RNA genes, they're a crucial class of genes that are involved with making every protein in your cells, every single one. So they have a really important function. So proteins are composed of amino acids, which are, the, which are these 20 different types of chemicals, which you can then assemble like a little puzzle. And then when they're done, they serve different biological purposes. So they can go act as little cellular machineries to cut things or put things onto other proteins or just to help maintain cells. But they, they're involved with basically every aspect of you know, a cell's life. And tRNA genes are attached with one of those 20 amino acids and bring it to the place where the, where the protein is made to allow those proteins to be made correctly. So hence the transfer. Exactly. The so every different amino acid kind of has its own handler. Exactly. And each one is specific to a particular letter in that kind That's of amino exactly acid right. alphabet. That's exactly right. So there's something about each tRNA gene, little markers known as identity elements that can say like, oh, so this is a proline tRNA, so you should... I should be charged with proline. You should attach a proline amino acid to me so I can use it uh, when, whenever this protein needs proline, for example. Cool. And they're super fundamental in, in life. So my intuition is usually that if something goes wrong with something that fundamental, <laughs> then like having a problem with how you make DNA or proteins as machinery uh, affects basically everything. Or I, I'd expect that animals have trouble surviving with damaged tRNA genes? So what's very interesting, actually, is we have a ton of different tRNAs. We have a lot of different copies. So what's more interesting is you could probably more, more easily handle um, a defective tRNA that's completely broken and doesn't work than you could with one that works but kind of just does the wrong thing very well. Mm. So we have many different copies of each tRNA in your genome. Uh, humans have like over 300, close to 400, something like that, that are known to be expressed. Wow. So if you knock out one of them, you might not notice much of an effect because you have four or five other copies of that, of that gene that can essentially pick up the slack. So you might actually be okay. But if you have a tRNA gene that, for example, puts a serine instead of a proline, so it's doing the wrong job, but it's still doing it effectively, that's when things can really start to cause your problems. Because now it's still, now it's doing the wrong job at a high rate, and because it's so involved with all these fundamental processes, that can really stress out the cell and maybe kill it. Right. So that's where you start to see your problems. And what kind of problems would we see? So because it can mess up a whole bunch of different proteins, it causes something called a proteotoxic stress, pro like just toxic proteins, they build up, they aggregate. So you might have heard of like protein aggregation. This is very common in things like Huntington's or Alzheimer's where these proteins just clump up and interfere with the cell's ability just to do things and it's toxic and can kill the cells. And that's actually very common. So if you have very, very high levels of these problems with these tRNAs, let's make the like bad proteins over and over, they clump up and can kill the cells. Do cells ever... Uh basically back each other up. And I, I know there's a couple different types of cell death, right? There's mm -hmm. death kind of by accident where the cell just dies. But then there's also a kind of controlled 
you know, cleanup situation where they can kind of fix each other. Does that does that tend to happen a lot? So it does. Um, at relatively low levels, cells can tolerate this kind of damage very well. They'll see that, oh, there's a misfolded protein here. That's not supposed to be there. So they'll target it for destruction. So be like, we'll just take that protein, break it down into its, compo- into its composite elements, into its really basic elements, and then just use those again to make a good protein. So if there's not too much of it, it can be handled pretty well, and your body can just so it's a little speed bump in a way. They can just coast on through and it's fine. Right. At high levels, they can start to struggle a bit more. They might still be viable, but they may not be able to clear it out very quickly. And at very high levels, a cell might just be like, as you mentioned, they're like, this is too much. We're starting to have too many problems. It's better for us just to die and just let the other cells in our body sort of take over, the ones that are doing their job well. So it could just be that those cells mark themselves for destruction, known as apoptosis. The cell just kind of kills itself. And then other cells will then just be able to divide or whatever and just take its place. In many cases. In neurons, that's not a possibility because neurons, they stop dividing. So the neurons you have are what you've got for the most part. If you're an adult listening to this, that's what you have. (laughs) So when those start to go, like in Alzheimer's or Huntington's, when there's like when you have too many proteins building up and aggregating and those cells die, there's nothing to replace them. That's when you start getting those disease conditions. Hmm. And so, so how would one study this? Like, how do you study these tRNAs? So that, it's a, that's a really good question. And they're, they are kind of hard to study because they are so crucial. And But also, if you knock them out completely, other tRNA genes make up for it. So if you break the gene, you may not see anything. But if you make it do the wrong thing too well, then also it might just kill your cell and you can't study it anyways. So in one of my labs, what they did was they took a tRNA that's normally supposed to be charged with serine, one of those 20 amino acids I mentioned earlier. And it takes that serine tRNA, that serine amino acid, but puts it in the place of proline, a different amino acid. And that's a really, really big change. So uh, proteins that have a serine instead of a proline, that's a really massive change to its structure and potentially its function. And that's a, it's really not a good thing. And at very high levels, what my lab found is they studied yeast these cells just die. You just cannot get uh, yeast cells that have this very strong mistranslating tRNA. That's where it's putting that serine in the place of a proline. It's putting the wrong thing in during the translation of proteins, hence mistranslation. But what you can do is you can take that mistranslating tRNA and make it do so at a lower rate. So you can induce secondary mutations, break other parts of that tRNA, so that it just it functions worse and therefore can't mistranslate at a high enough rate to cause the cell to actually die outright. It might still be sick, but it's not such a high level that it dies now. Right, and is your lab particularly interested, you mentioned uh, Huntington's as kind of an example disease, but is that something that your lab is actually mainly focused in researching? So we're not specifically focused on Huntington's itself, but that is definitely one of the experiments that I'm currently conducting. So the reason I brought that up is because like I mentioned before with Huntington's, how it can cause all these proteotoxic stresses to your cells. All these protein, these proteins aggregate, and then your cells have a hard time working around it, and it can cause them to die. Well, that's, so that's one proteotoxic stress. But what happens if we have a mistranslating tRNA in there too? So now we have two proteotoxic stresses, these two different sources of things that are causing these protein aggregations and are using up all this important pro- protein quality control machinery. Does that make it worse? Does like now that we have like this, these bad Huntington genes and these bad tRNA genes, is that worse than either one alone? Hmm. 
And so and that's a really interesting thing. And so have you gotten any results so far? Unfortunately, I'm like the most interesting comparison for that. I still have yet to do. I've set up my way to check on it now, but I have been looking at it in like in the fruit fly. So that's my main organism of interest. I've driven the disease form of Huntington's just in the eye which means that even if it causes all these neurological defects, it won't affect their central nervous system and affect viability and stuff like that. And then I'm basically aging them up to when they're essentially middle-aged. And then I get to see how their eyes degrade, essentially how the neurons in their eyes degrade, either through Huntington's or from my tRNAs or from both combined. So flies, as you might have noticed, like those really zoomed in pictures, have that really regular compound eye structure where you have all those different eye components in there. And when neurodegeneration occurs, when neurons start to die in the eye, that nice regular structure starts to become rough. It loses its regularity. You start to see the, like, the eye roughen and smoothen in some parts. It's very weird and gross looking, but it's cool for me at least. I like seeing it. Cool. Do you have any cool pictures that we can post along I with actually, this podcast? Yeah, I could. I can give you some really cool looking ones. I'd be more than happy to show you some. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so... This is one of those things that I imagine uh, is really, really well conserved, and a fly set of tRNAs isn't really going to differ very much from a human set of tRNAs. Um, I know that for a lot of more specific morphology-based uh, genes that it's going to be hugely different between flies and humans, but in terms of something so fundamental, does this tend to be a really translatable field of work where flies, mice, humans, it's all the same tRNA? I appreciate the translatable pun. Yeah. But... Um, <laughs> It was yeah, it's, <laughs> it definitely is highly conserved. So conserved is what we was what scientists refer to when we say that this is the same between flies and worms and humans. So this process is very, very well conserved between humans and flies and yeast between eukaryotes. So, for example, the tRNAs that I'm looking at have been adapted from yeast, but it's very, very, very similar. And so are many of the translation-based mechanisms and all the stuff that's used to read them and that kind of stuff. They're very similar. Hmm. So other than effects on the eye, do you see any other effects uh, when messing up tRNAs? So one thing I noticed that I think is really cool and didn't expect at all is that I integrated three different tRNAs into my flies. One that's totally normal, so I can compare things to it one that mistranslates at a low frequency, and one that mistranslates at a much higher frequency. And what I found was that the flies that mistranslated at a high frequency tended to have a lot of really severe physical defects once they became adults. They had things like broken or gnarled legs, they were missing some wings or had these really odd fluid-filled blisters in them, they would have like parts of their abdomen wouldn't be fused together properly and oh, they no. oh it's it's yeah they look real messed up and sometimes you'd have some really unlucky ones that were like just they were so sick they were like missing half of their chest essentially oh. and they just sort of lay on their back just and starve to death because they were so unfit that they just couldn't even really eat properly so i started to notice this and i was like well this is a very this isn't supposed to be this way of course for a normal fly so what hap how many of these am i seeing so I looked at my wild-type flies, my normal tRNAs, my weak mistra mistranslators, and my strong mistranslators, and found that my strong mistranslators had a much higher proportion of deformities than my normal flies did. Much, much higher. But I also noticed in this that female flies were disproportionately affected relative to male flies. Oh, no. Which was, so I had this unexpected result, and then an unexpected result within an unexpected result. And that's 
really strange because that's suggesting that something these flies are completely identical with the exception of being male or female. So there's a number of different things that could like we think might cause that, but we're just we're really unsure because this has been very poorly studied before. So we think it might be that because female flies develop faster and are larger, they have to make way more proteins and make them faster that it just means they aren't able to tolerate mistakes very easily. Mm. Because if they kind of make a mistake and they're rushing to get to this developmental point and you have this, you know, a protein, an important protein is messed up, they may not really be able to fix it very easily because they still have to keep on developing and producing protein at such a high rate. Mm. And a lot of proteins associated with translation are really highly upregulated, meaning they're expressed much more strongly in females than males, which is really cool as well. And so it's this really interesting result that I'm still just trying to wrap my head around and see how it's going. So how translatable is this to humans? Because I know like humans, for example, females are not usually bigger than males or anything like that. So that's a really good question. And we aren't females aren't usually bigger than males. But what you might. But one thing that literature is pretty clear on is that when it comes to neurodegenerative diseases, things like Huntington's or Alzheimer's, they do have differences depending on what sex you are. So Alzheimer's is known to be much more common in females than males, for example. And women who have um, Huntington's disease tend to experience symptoms sooner and also tend to experience them more strongly than males do. Mm. So even though we might not be seeing like that same level of deformities or because of size, it does seem that when it comes to proteotoxic diseases, there are sex-specific effects going on. So I'm not going to say that this is the cause or anything like that, but it could be this interesting novel contributor to what we're seeing here, given that there are so many variant tRNAs per person. Oh, my God. You need to figure out how to fix this. Yeah, really? <laughs> for yeah, the gonna, sake of all women. <laughs> I'm going to go home and thank my tRNAs for not mistranslating oh, things because all but, these things sound pretty bad. Well, the problem is, though, so a, a very recent study from one of my, from one of my labs, because I'm co-supervised in two of them, one of them found that they did a, a sort of deep sequencing dive into human populations, about 80 different humans from the London area. And they found that each individual person has about 65 tRNA variants per person. So there's a very good chance that you have like not just a mistranslator, but potentially a bunch of different mutant tRNAs that might be mistranslating. And we just don't really know what they do in humans. We're just really unsure about that. So you and probably everyone else you know have about 65 tRNA variants per person, and that's who knows what they do. So is this maybe a, a bit of a potential case of making all of these different backups just to be extra, extra safe to make sure our tRNAs work? But the more backups you have, the more risks there is of one being a mistranslator. And there's kind of a certain uh, balancing point where too many backups is... It starts to get really bad because you're increasing the risk? Or So I'm not sure if it would be necessarily too many would be. That's an interesting point, like that so many could eventually develop these mutations and cause all these problems. Yeah. And there are there are like some tRNAs that there are some genes that look like tRNAs in these organisms that sort of lost their function a while ago just because through evolution they were broken and then just never got fixed essentially. But it could be that one of the like it's good to have so many different copies of these because the effects of having too few and then having one of them break is catastrophic like your cells would just die yeah you can't call for a specific amino acid in there and it needs it then your cells and you don't have a backup it's just you're done so you want to have a lot of these copies but that does actually 
mean that we might get these gain-of-function mutations in some of these. Gain-of-function meaning that this mutation causes it to take on or to have a function that it didn't have before, in this case mistranslating. So it could be that all these backups would have that downside where now, yeah, if you break it, it's not going to kill your cells, but you might have some specific mutations that can cause mistranslation. So there probably is a balance between the amount of tRNAs we have to have enough backups, but not so many that we get a lot of mistranslation going on to kill cells like that. Right. And, and and going kind of back a little bit earlier to what you said about the flies kind of developing with these huge morphology changes and um, defects, were those ultimately defects from birth or were they things that kind of developed later and, and later in life? Because I, I think of the human diseases that get associated with this as things that develop quite a bit later. That's a really good point. So yeah, with these human diseases, with Huntington's, Alzheimer's, we all know it as an age-related illness. The older you get, the worse it tends to be. That's when you start to see it. And these um, developmental defects that we noticed, they tended to appear right when the flies became adults. So you can think of a fruit fly, their life cycle is like that of a butterfly. So you have your egg, which then hatches into a caterpillar, then goes into a cocoon, and then comes out as your overall butterfly. You have the same thing with flies, where it starts as egg to larva, the cocoon is called a pupa, and then your adult fly. And even flies that it closed, which means they got out of their cocoon very, very recently, still had many of these defects that I noticed. So it appears that they were essentially from birth or right from adulthood, I should say. That's when they showed up, and they didn't seem to develop any more over time. So it seems they were just kind of, they developed when they were adults, and that's what they kept. And could this be genetic? Like, have you done any tests where seeing if this can be passed on or anything? That is a super cool idea, and I would <laughs> love to test like multi-generational <laughs> effects like that, but right now I just haven't gotten around to that. There's a lot of other like multi-generational things I'd love to get around to doing soon, but yeah. unfortunately it's a case like one thing at a time. Maybe in two years I can come back and tell you what else I found. Yeah, speaking of, you're on your PhD, right? Yeah. Uh, what year? Uh, early on in the second. Oh, okay, awesome. So, uh, I mean, are you thinking of doing a postdoc maybe, continuing in this research? I think I definitely will end up doing a postdoc. Maybe, yeah, I really am enjoying this research and just research in general. Mm -hmm. It's hard and the hours suck, but it's when things work, when you get those cool discoveries, it's just, it's really, really satisfying. There's nothing else quite like it. So I think I would want to stay in the field. So not sure where I want to do a postdoc yet. I still really early on in the PhD, but I think postdoc is in, in the future. And how did you get into this field in the first place? So it's it's really interesting, actually, because, and this might be almost like a good lesson to other scientists, is I was just hanging out with a friend of mine who was also a grad student in a different lab at the time. So I did my master's here, at well, here as well. And I was just hanging out with my friend, and we were just grabbing a few drinks together and just talking about our research and what we could do. And then we were just kind of just talking about our research. And then as we just had more and more drinks, we started to realize that our, what, we were doing could fit together really, really well. So he was the tRNA guy and I was a fly guy originally. I wasn't studying tRNAs at all originally. But he mentioned that he really wanted to test how they worked in a multicellular multicellular model like flies. So after a few drinks, I went and like asked the waitress for a piece of receipt paper and a crayon, basically. (laughs) I started drawing out some fly crosses and we just, I came to my supervisor the next day and was like, can I collaborate with my friends? And I just showed her this (laughs) thing and both our supervisors agreed. And that, that was halfway through my master's. And then partway through it, we realized, like, this could be a whole PhD thing. It's going in this really interesting direction. It's being this really cool project. So those two supervisors asked if I wanted to take it on as a full-time thing. And I agreed because it really is such cool research. 
Yeah, so the lesson is if you come up with an idea, like don't be afraid to go and talk to your supervisor about it, right? For like, sure. You don't just have to take a project they give you if you come up with something. like. Collaborations are really, like everyone always talks about how collaborative science should be, and it, it really, really should because there's so many things that you just don't know that your colleagues can understand so much better and so many interesting projects that you could do with both of your skills combined. And it's also it splits up the work as well. And it's more publications for those more practically minded people. It's just it's really just no excuse. You really should try and collaborate as much as you possibly can. If you can, of course, not everyone can, but I really would recommend it. So go drinking with your grad students <laughs> and talk science. So it was was this one of those things where you you get into it and because you're now instead of focusing just on flies, you're looking at this new kind of weird um, functional system, the tRNA system, which you hadn't maybe looked at before. Was it kind of a sudden learning curve? And oh, it was like a, it was a huge learning curve. So in in my masters, I was essentially studying the genetic basis of uh, female receptivity, which is a fancy way of saying uh, why do female flies want to have sex with this type of male fly and not that male fly. And which is, I mean, it's an interesting project in its own right, but going from that to a really cellular, like a really molecular, why do tRNAs cause these sorts of effects and these things like this uh, effect on translation, it was a huge change of change of pace. And it's very biochemistry heavy, and I did not do my undergrad in biochemistry, so it was it was a challenge sort of coming up coming up to it, but I think it was very satisfying in the end. Yeah, I feel like the level you're at feels like it, it could not possibly be more nuts and bolts of biology without getting into straight up physics and, and chemistry Honestly, and atoms yeah. and molecules. It really is like the most fundamental processes of biology. And that's part of what makes it so interesting is just every single cell's got this. So how can we and all these problems can occur. So what are those effects? So the the day to day lab work uh, for you is it does it tend to be pretty tech heavy, pretty computer heavy, or is it more kind of like you work with the flies and then you get a little bit of data, but the samples kind of get analyzed all over the place? I, I know it's a collaborative uh, situation here, so I wonder what you actually do physically in the lab on kind of a day to day. So I'm currently conducting a lot of behavioral analyses, things like longevity assays, um, larval motility assays, so how far do larvae crawl with these different tRNAs, um, climbing assays. So it actually is a lot of really nose to the grindstone bench work rather than data analysis at this stage mm -hmm. because I need to collect a whole bunch of flies so that I can go s control for ages when I set up longevity assays. I need to control for ages with um, like climbing assays. I need to sort of film them in these very film larvae larva in these specific ways for other assays. So it really is a lot of bench work, which is honestly what I love. Yeah. Uh, writing and analysis, it has its advantages, but it gets boring so fast. So I much <laughs> prefer to be in the lab doing my own thing. Yeah, I think I'm maybe the one guy who likes the analysis part of things. So I respect <laughs> that. I respect the most people. Honestly, <laughs> most you're going to be you're going to be friends with a lot of researchers then because yeah. they want someone to do their analysis. So the kind of assays you look at, just as somebody who in fact doesn't do a whole lot of the actual hands-on working with the animal thing, um, what is what is a climbing assay? You mentioned that. So a climbing assay, it's it's very simple. So flies naturally want to move upwards. It's just an, an innate response. They always want to be climbing upwards. Interesting. Kind of so like you, cats. Exactly. A little bit. Anyway, they always want to be high up. So you have these flies in a vial, in a food vial, and you mark a line. As you basically draw a line a specific length from the top of the food, so five centimeters in my case, and you just take these flies and you tap them onto a benchtop surface three times, and then you see how many of them can cross that line in eight seconds. 
<laughs> and that's really a climbing assay. And it's a very simple locomotive assay, but it can test for neurodegeneration because as your neurons break down, it's harder for you to climb, that response weakens. So what I want to do is not just those climbing assays, like just one and done. I want to test the same flies multiple times over their life. So once every two days for 30 or 40 days so that I can see that not only do like does their ability to climb up decrease, but at what point does it start to decrease? Mm. And is that point different between like my normal tRNA versus my severe mistranslating tRNA? Awesome. And if you were to study something like this in humans, how would this how would you do that? So humans would be difficult. You would first have to sequence them, make sure they have these mistranslating tRNAs, see what sort of ones they have. Then you would probably want to go onto like a like a much more molecular basis, see if you can find these sort of protein reporters and see if you can see evidence of mistranslation. And then from there, you might be able to analyze these sort of neurotoxic stresses later in life. But there's all these assays. You can't just keep a human in a in a room and tell them to climb mm -hmm. up a ladder every two days. You know, <laughs> So you'll have to have to make your compromises somewhere. But you probably start at a protein level and maybe work your way up or cell culture, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. One day. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you've been around uh, Western and now you're doing your PhD here. Do you have any other advice for grad students that you can give them, not just about Western, but about grad school in general? Uh, get used to failing is the honest <laughs> answer. Uh, my yeah. my trans genes with the tRNAs hopped out three times, I think, which was a loss of three or four months each time that happened. It's got to keep your head up and go forward. Everyone tells that to you. It's very true. You're, it's going to be ups and downs every time. Just really just live for those ups in a way. And also make friends with your department if you can, because having like friends you can rely on in, either in your lab or in your department, it really just makes, you know, the long nights in the lab that much less long. Something that I, I hear around the lab sometimes a lot is, uh, wouldn't it be cool if this worked? Which I think is <laughs> is the attitude you yeah. kind of eventually get. It's just like, it. you just have to be excited for if it works, yeah. not necessarily once this works we do. But it's yeah. kind of just like, a, hey, it would be cool if this if this works out the way yeah. we expected it to because it gets messy. You, know? you just get so used to failure after a while. Like the third yeah. time it hopped out, I just, I felt nothing. Mm -hmm. I was like, yep, that band's not there. Back to the lab. Like, <laughs> here we go. Like long night, I guess. And then <laughs> you just, yeah. somehow you just keep pushing you, forward. You You've gotten you've gotten uh, tough and optimistic. So thanks uh, so much for coming on the show, Josh. This was a super cool talk. Um, if our listeners are getting really into fly research themselves or tRNA research themselves, uh, is there anywhere social media-wise where they can follow up with you or your lab or your collaborators? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at, at Josh Isaacson, um, I-S-A-A-C-S-O-N. Just shoot me a direct message. If you've got any questions about the lab, you can look up the um, the Western websites for the Brandel Lab or the Maring Lab and just feel free to shoot me an email if you ever have any questions. Well, thank you so much. This is a good way to end the show, I think. Uh, just on a, some good advice for everybody. And this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Nicole Poznov, and my co-host host was... Connor Chato. And we're here speaking with Joshua Isaacson. Uh, this was the this episode was produced by Laura. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we're on CHRW 94.9 every Tuesday at 6 p.m. and every other Thursday at 1.30 p.m. You can also find us uh, find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on pod podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. 